0: Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary issues that drive health outcomes. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP. Its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. This is William Zellmer for AJHP Voices, this installment concerns the latest edition of the ASHP National Survey of Pharmacy Practice in Hospital Settings. With me are Michael Gagno, Director of Pharmacy Practice and Quality at ASHP, and Douglas Shekelhoff, ASHP Senior Vice President, Office of Practice Advancement. They worked with Craig Peterson and Philip J. Schneider in doing the survey and reporting the results. The annual ASHP National Survey is conducted on a rolling three-year cycle with particular components of the medication use process covered every third year. The 2019 survey dealt with practices and technologies related to prescribing and transcribing, as well as several other topics of contemporary interest. The National Survey has been tracking the extent to which hospital pharmacists have authority to initiate medication orders based on a physician's diagnosis, or to modify medication orders consistent with policy or protocol. Doug, what trends have you seen in this regard?
1: Well, this is something that we have tracked uh, over time, and uh, it has consistently grown to the point now where uh, over 90% of hospitals allow pharmacists to either initiate or modify orders and uh, so uh, nearly all hospitals do this now that's different from uh, prescribing uh, pursuant to a diagnosis and prescribing is only uh, only happens in about six percent of hospitals Uh, but i think it's also worth noting that in in over 90 percent of hospitals pharmacists also have the authority to order serum medication levels or other uh, lab tests that are related to medications so it it really is a, a, a testament to the significant involvement that pharmacists have in, in, uh, in, in modifying and managing drug therapy.
0: Yes, indeed. Doug, uh, your article reports detailed information on the extent to which hospital pharmacists handle dosing and monitoring of anticoagulation therapy. What are your key takeaways from the trends in this area? This is another area where we know pharmacists have had involvement for many years, and we've tracked this for some time,
1: Currently, over half of hospitals have pharmacists routinely ordering and managing warfarin therapy, and a slightly lower percentage, about 40%, have pharmacists involved with low molecular weight heparins. Uh, about a third of uh, hospitals have pharmacists managing heparin therapy, and then about a fourth manage direct oral anticoagulants. That's a question that we just added a few years ago when these these novel agents became more commonplace. And overall, the, the incidence continues to grow, and, and we continue to hear about this even in the light of uh, the COVID-19 situation where many coagulation clinics that are managed by pharmacists have developed drive-through anticoagulation services so that patients don't need to come into the clinic, but yet they can still receive that care through uh, a pharmacist. Well, very interesting.
0: Doug, the survey showed a relatively low prevalence of pharmacist participation in pharmacogenomic drug therapy management. What is your assessment of the current state and the potential for expansion of this activity? Sure. This is an area where we know that
1: there's a lot of interest and a lot of potential with managing drugs using uh, pharmacogenomic uh, markers and uh, we, we think that there is a lot of growth potential. We started asking this question in 2018, and uh, we've asked about whether pharmacists were recommending pharmacogenomics testing, whether they were designing or optimizing uh, a patient-specific drug regimen, or if pharmacists were just acting as consultants around pharmacogenomics. And what we found was that for each of those areas, it was relatively low, about 5% of hospitals in each. And we asked just a blanket question, is the pharmacist role limited to dispensing of these products? So in other words, really no involvement in terms of managing these drugs from a pharmacogenomic standpoint. And about 90% of hospitals said that's all they do is dispense the product. So we really see this as an area of growth and a a lot of opportunity, especially since uh, 90% of hospitals have not engaged in in pharmacist activity in this area uh, to date.
0: Mike, I'd like to turn to you for a few questions. Uh, Approximately 62% of hospitals use the auto-verification functionality of their CPOE system, thereby bypassing the pharmacist verification step for at least some orders. I'm interested in your assessment of the current state of this practice and your thoughts about the long-term implications for the pharmacy workforce.
2: We thought it was important to measure the auto-verification of orders. Um, this is a really challenging discussion as the medication experts, uh, pharmacists are charged with ensuring the medication use is appropriate, safe and effective, and that's best accomplished through order review. However, for auto-verification, in some instances it may be appropriate, although some regulators uh, and accreditors require a pharmacist review of orders so again it just becomes a challenging discussion Uh, some of the exceptions might be saline flush or fluid uh, maintenance iv solutions that don't have any electrolyte additives for example Um, other exceptions might be clinical situations where the timeliness of an order is critical emergency departments for example so we we have two data points for this particular question and we saw an increase uh, from 2016 around 52% to the 62% you noted in the most recent survey. Um, what I do think is important to point out is there's a decline in the category of all medications auto-verifying in a selected area, meaning no matter what, what if it's the emergency department, it's an all or nothing approach, so it would be every medication. Um, the number of respondents using that uh, approach declined from 58% to 52% and we saw growth in categories of a selected medication. Uh, So what that tells me is that the electronic health records um, are allowing a little bit more sophisticated approach to auto-verification and departments and and pharmacists are taking advantage of of that um, sophisticated approach, uh, being more selective in what gets auto-verified and what does not get auto-verified. As far as implications on the future of pharmacy practice, I, I think as auto-verification becomes a more refined tool, uh, eventually we'll incorporate predictive analytics, can determine which orders should and should not be auto-verified rather than taking a this drug or not that drug or this department or not that department. Uh, we'll be able to use uh, a much more uh, a scientific approach, and that'll allow pharmacists to spend more time uh, in patient care areas, direct patient care, doing more clinically complex tasks.
0: Well, Mike, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions that relate to uh, your takeaways from survey findings on opioid stewardship. Uh, Let's start first on uh, the pharmacist roles. What can you say in that regard?
2: Yeah, one of the, uh, actually one of the more important takeaways, I think, is that in just one year, so this is the second year we've asked this question, and it's been in uh, consecutive years, uh, we've, seen growth in opioid stewardship from about 41% to about 47%. Um, For pharmacist roles, the pharmacist leadership and accountability of the opioid stewardship program grew from about 55% up to 65%. The primary role of pharmacists in the opioid stewardship programs, the most common response is in diversion prevention and detection, Uh, but seeing that growth in the leadership and accountability aspect of opioid stewardship is encouraging.
0: Mm -hmm. What can you say about overall strategies used in opioid stewardship programs? Uh,
2: The most common strategies used include uh, education of uh, providers and clinicians and implementation of practice guidelines. Mm -hmm. So most of the listeners will be familiar with CDC guidelines and recommendations on uh, appropriate opioid use. Uh, So implementation of those guidelines and education about them has been the, the most common strategy Um, Prescription drug monitoring programs have also been a very common part of opioid stewardship programs, uh, as has the emphasis on non-pharmacologic or non-opioid pain management. So looking at ways of treating pain without
0: using opioids. Mike, uh, based on this survey, uh, how would you characterize the engagement of hospitals in specialty pharmacy activities? And I'd appreciate if you can speak uh, in terms of current engagement as well as future potential.
2: We've actually seen a large amount of growth in this area just in five years. So uh, in the 2014 survey, just about 8% of hospitals indicated they had a specialty pharmacy program, uh, and that grew to 26% last year. So just five years, uh, seeing almost 20% growth in that area is, is substantial, as far as uh, current engagement and future potential, about 10% of respondents this year say they plan to establish a specialty pharmacy in the near future. Another 10% of respondents indicating that they've partnered with a specialty pharmacy, it gives us about 45% total of respondents that have some sort of specialty pharmacy strategy in their health system. Um, the remaining hospitals, or about 55% of them, address specialty medications on a case-by-case basis.
0: Mm -hmm. Doug, coming back to you, uh, about 44% of hospitals said they have business relationships with community pharmacies. What are your key takeaways in this area?
1: Well, Bill, this is another area that continues to grow. And we we asked this question back in 2016, and it was less than 40%. And and as you noted, it's up to uh, uh, 44% now. The most common type of relationship is where Uh, The the hospital and and their outpatient services are uh, 340B eligible, and they've chosen to have a contract uh, pharmacy relationship with pharmacies in the community or or in the area. That's the most common. That's over 70 percent. But the other types of relationships that are a bit more involved, uh, the next most common is where the hospital has established a discharge prescription service, maybe a meds to bed program or something similar to that. With a, a local pharmacy. And so if they don't have a pharmacy uh, that's affiliated with the hospital directly, they've chosen to have this relationship with a a, a nearby pharmacy, a community pharmacy or chain that can uh, provide those discard, discharge prescriptions. A number of them, over 20%, have also uh, arranged to have a pharmacy that is on the hospital grounds or on the hospital campus uh, that is owned by either a chain or community pharmacy and so that they're providing that service within the uh, area of the hospital to to be able to provide those services to to patients so there were a few other types of arrangements where there were urgent care or prompt care clinics within chain pharmacy locations that were branded from the hospital or the health system that happened in about five percent and then uh, we also asked about whether those community pharmacy arrangements included access to the hospital's uh, EHR, and that was happening at about 11%. But in in all of these types of business relationships, the numbers have continued to grow uh, as we've asked these questions.
0: Well, gentlemen, as we draw our conversation to a close, I have something I'd like each of you to comment on. Uh, We're having this conversation in late April 2020, in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, which is imposing immense challenges in all areas of health care, including hospital pharmacy practice. Mike, starting with you, do you have any preliminary thoughts about the long term effects, both positive and negative, that COVID nineteen might have on hospital pharmacy activities?
2: Bill, I think one of the bigger lessons learned right now has been on the pharmaceutical supply chain. As you know, there's been a history of shortages going back. 20 years, and um, ASHP has done a lot of advocacy and and provided resources on drug shortages. But what we're seeing now is absolutely unprecedented. And typically, when we think of a a shortage, think of a disruption in manufacturing, uh, whether it's a quality control issue or drug recalls or a manufacturer drops out of the market and and leaves only one or two other manufacturers. The COVID-19 pandemic and the, the demand increase for intensive care unit drugs is is just uh, astounding. 500 to 600% increases in utilization of some drugs for intensive care units, whether they're sedatives or neuromuscular blockers. Add to that the concerns about where our drugs are manufactured and the impact of COVID-19 as it spread and, and manufacturers were were temporarily closed. The API sources, the active pharmaceutical ingredient sources, there's concern with their manufacturer and then even export bans on finished pharmaceuticals uh, from India, uh, European countries blocking parallel exports of these drugs. Just unprecedented amount of concern over this supply chain. As far as pharmacy practice goes, it's understanding a need for more resiliency, more redundancy in our supply chain. And you know, should there be a handful of drugs that are you know monitored more closely, perhaps have a, a more of a safety stock on hand. You know, not recommending hoarding. se, but having an understanding of what drugs you have on hand, what the needs are for those drugs clinically, and and rather than a seven-day supply on hand, you have a two- or three-week supply on hand. So I think that'll be one of the lessons learned out of the COVID-19 pandemic.
0: Mike, let me just follow up on that. Might you anticipate that the the, the heightened uh, seriousness of this problem of drug shortages uh, in our current circumstance uh, might stimulate some... uh, national government activities to help alleviate uh, this problem over time?
2: Absolutely. And, you know, ironically, ASHP, along with some other stakeholders, had planned a summit for March that has been postponed uh, examining the drug supply chain, the threats to, to our drugs, not just the access, but also the quality, because as you likely know, there have been some quality concerns over some of the manufacturers overseas but never let a good emergency go to waste. We've actually been successful in having some of our drug shortage priorities, uh, legislative priorities passed. They were included in the CARES Act, the the third round of COVID-19 legislation that was passed and signed into law by the president. That legislation included provisions for more thorough reporting of drug shortages in advance, uh, included reporting going back to the API manufacturers, uh, it includes some provisions to support the adoption of advanced manufacturing techniques. Uh, and these, these advanced manufacturing, uh, technologies would actually allow sites to be a little bit more agile in switching over what they're producing and, and where they're producing it and could allow more prompt manufacturer products here in the United States if needed. Uh, and there's been a lot, there's been a lot of discussion about bringing manufacturing home to the United States. But as we've seen with problems in the McPherson, Kansas plant with injectable opioids last year, I was listening to a webcast from Janet Woodcock, director of the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research with FDA, who said that even domestic manufacturing facilities are challenged with workers who are either sick with COVID-19 or afraid of getting the infection. So domestic manufacturing alone is not the answer to this but investing in these advanced manufacturing technologies, making sure there's enough redundancy and resiliency in the entire supply chain around the world um, is the best approach. So we And we have seen some, some movement in that
0: direction through legislative activity. Good, I appreciate your comment. You know, Doug, sticking with the same issue of uh, long-term effects on hospital pharmacy practice of our current pandemic, uh, what would you add? The one area
1: that has really changed significantly for many hospitals uh, has been around the use of remote staffing and the application of telehealth type of technologies in, in providing care and, and overall pharmacy operations. And we have conducted a, a parallel, a smaller survey just in the last few weeks to ask about the utilization of those technologies. And we were surprised by the results, I, I guess. Uh, maybe we anticipated that there would be a lot of activity, but you know, the hospitals, about 60% of hospitals are using pharmacists remotely for things like order verification. And that had been done before on a much smaller scale. And we've asked questions about that in the national survey in the past, but the numbers were much, much smaller. Now it's it's 60% because they're trying to keep uh, the staff away from the hospital. We heard that about 50%, half of hospitals are using telehealth visits for their outpatients by pharmacists, so that again is is considerable, and that was relatively unheard of before. Some some places might have done it, but we're hearing actually a lot of very positive results from that. Patients really enjoy having a bit more time with a pharmacist. It's much more convenient for them, and it uh, it seems to be a very positive outcome all the way around. And I think that'll be an area that will remain after uh, COVID nineteen diminishes and we get to a point where, you know, uh, visits to the hospital, to the clinic are more readily available. I think many of these telehealth visits will continue. Many hospitals have used it even for inpatients. So for medication histories, they've been doing those remotely so that the pharmacist, uh, in some cases, doesn't need to go into the patient's bedside. So about a third of hospitals are, are doing that. And overall, we found that only 20% of hospitals said that they were not using either remote staffing or telehealth types of technologies. So, uh, you know, by inference, 80% are using it in some way. And, and we really see this as uh, something that will continue and it'll have a, a positive outcome and, and lasting effect after COVID-19 diminishes.
0: hmm Well, thank you very much, uh, Mike and Doug, for having this conversation with me on the latest uh, ASHP National Survey of Pharmacy Practice in Hospital Settings. I think you've uh, given listeners some uh, key points to look for as they read this article. And uh, again, I appreciate your time. For AJHP Voices, this is William Zelmer. I've been speaking with Michael Gagneau, and Douglas Shekelhoff of the ASHP staff about the 2019 ASHP National Survey of Pharmacy Practice in Hospitals. Thank you for listening. That concludes this interview. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit www.ajhp.org.